ahead and, and begin, though. <clears throat> Hopefully my, my voice doesn't fail me. Um, this week, we are going to be talking about baptism and maybe the Lord's Supper a little bit. I don't really think we'll have time for that this week. Um, but we will begin talking about, uh, about the topic of baptism. Uh, so you guys know what the schedule of the week looks like. Um, uh, even though this is an abbreviated week, we're going to take our study hall on Thursday because I will not be here. I have to go up to Brian uh, for an Old Testament class to guest lecture there. So um, we're going to have lectures today, Wednesday, and Friday. So uh, Thursday will be the study hall day. Uh, there are not reflection questions. Make sure you bring something to work on during your study hall time on Thursday. Uh, and uh, we'll have somebody in here with you guys. Yes? I have mine for what was due today, right? Weren't some due today? There were some due today. Okay, do you want me to have those at the end of class? Uh, they're due at the beginning of class. Oh, I have them now. Here. Put them on my desk. Okay. Um, yeah, if you've not turned those in and you have a hard copy, put them on my desk. If you need to still email them, uh, get those in as soon as possible. So um, let's go ahead and get started, though. Um, We've spent the last several weeks talking about uh, this concept of redemption applied, how the Holy Spirit takes the benefits of Christ's work um, that he accomplished 2,000 years ago and then gives those benefits to us in real space and time. Uh, The Spirit comes upon us, gives us union with Christ, and all of these benefits, justification, righteousness, sanctification, uh, the Spirit gifts us with all of those graces. And as we're kind of transitioning from talking about redemption being applied to us, the next topic that we really want to start broaching is uh, things related to the Christian experience and the Christian life. So, uh, we're going to talk about, you know, as once we become Christians, what are kind of some of the things that uh, we experience, that we go through. And in a large portion of this uh, segment of the class is going to wind up dealing with, um, with ethics. We'll, we'll spend a lot of time talking about the Ten Commandments and the place of the law in the Christian life. Uh, but, but we're getting into some more kind of practical type stuff. Um, but the entry point into this is going to be baptism. And the reason why, we'll see in a minute, is because baptism is our entryway into the Christian community. All right? In the New Testament, we have the idea that baptism is the way that you are accepted and received and become a member in a local church. Um, Acts 2.41, down at the bottom of the screen, uh, Acts 2 is Peter preaching at Pentecost, and he preaches at Pentecost He tells these people about Jesus and how he's died to take away your sins. And it says, those who received his word were baptized. And then it says, there was added that day about 3,000 souls. So the idea that we have in Acts chapter 2 is you have the church. You have Peter and the other disciples in Jerusalem. They make up the, 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 the body of Christ on earth. They are members of the church. They preach the gospel, and these people hear the gospel. They believe the gospel. They're saved. And then they ask Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, be baptized. And these people are baptized. And then they're counted among the number 
of the disciples. All right? Now, we want to make a distinction. This is something we're going to come back to probably on Friday, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. We want to make a distinction uh, between salvation and being a part of Jesus's church. All right? Whenever we have faith in Jesus, we're saved. We're one day going to go to heaven. We're a part of his people. Whenever we have faith, we have union with Christ. All right? Whenever we have faith, all of those things are true. But here on earth, Jesus has a physical and visible community, and that is called the church. And believers are supposed to become part of the church. And the way that we become part of the church is through this rite of entry called baptism. So, um, as we think about baptism's link with church membership, I want to make two really important points right from the get-go. Number one, membership in a local church is considered a non-negotiable in the New Testament. Okay. Um, how do we get to that idea? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. All right. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And some Christians, because they're being persecuted for their faith, decide, I'm just going to be very private Christians. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to associate with other believers. I believe in Jesus in my heart, but I'm going to hide it away. You know that uh, whole thing um, that Jesus talks about, like nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel or hides it under a bed, right? They let their light shine. These people aren't doing that. They're trying to hide their faith. And the book of Hebrews criticizes them for that. And says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, these people are committing a sin. They're not affiliating themselves with the local church. They're not going to meet together with the other saints. And the book of Hebrews looks at them and says, don't neglect to meet together. You need to be a part of the church when it gathers. Another thing that we see in the New Testament that's really, really fascinating is that we really just don't get any what we call lone wolf Christians. Whenever you look at the New Testament, um, you know, all of these letters that are written in the New Testament, they're addressed to what? Churches. The church at Philippi. The church at Colossae. The church at Rome. And interestingly, there are some letters that are addressed to individuals. What would be some examples of that? Hmm? Yeah, there are some that are addressed to Timothy and to Titus. But do you know what Timothy is? He's a pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul says in the Timothy letters that the letter that he wrote personally to Timothy, guess who it should be read to? The entire church. Same thing with Titus. One of the really interesting ones is um, probably the most personal letter we get in the New Testament is written to a guy named Philemon. Philemon had a servant, a slave named Onesimus, and Philemon apparently treated him pretty badly, and Onesimus ran away. And he ran away, and he found Paul. And he tattled on Philemon. Way long time ago, Philemon had become a Christian under Paul's preaching. So whenever Onesimus ran away from Philemon, he winds up finding Paul. He winds up becoming a Christian. And he winds up telling Paul, these are all the bad things Philemon did. 
And Paul writes a letter to Philemon and says, you need to reconcile with Onesimus, this guy that you've mistreated. You need to apologize. You need to repent. And it's really interesting. The letter to Philemon is very personal. It's addressed directly to Philemon and to all these other leaders in the church. So Paul does something very interesting. Here's my personal letter telling Philemon he needs to repent, but I'm also addressing it to these other leaders in the church so that what can they do to Philemon? Hold him accountable. So even the personal letters of the New Testament are written to churches. None of them are actually written to individuals. They're written to church communities. And so the New Testament, you don't really, Hebrews 10 is kind of the closest that you're going to come to the New Testament saying you need to be a part of a church. All right. The thing that we need to recognize, though, is that the New Testament just takes it for granted that Christians know that and are going to do it. So membership in a local church really is a non-negotiable in the New Testament. Another thing that we need to recognize is uh, the distinction that I made a second ago Um We said a second ago, baptism is the way that you get into a local church. It's kind of this right of entry. It's the way that you become a member, but it doesn't save you. All right. We're going to talk about what baptism does and doesn't do on Friday. And we're going to look at some difficult text with that. But the idea that we get in the New Testament is that what saves us is our faith. Faith is what gives us union with Christ. Faith is what gives us salvation. And it's possible to be saved. And it's possible to join God's people in heaven without baptism. Can you think of anybody who got saved without being baptized in the Bible? Thief on the cross. cross. You'll be with me today in paradise. Did that guy ever get dunked under the water? No. All these people in the Old Testament, before baptism was around, they're saved. All right? The thing that saves us, whether Old Testament or New Testament, the thing that saves is faith. So it's possible to be saved as a, as a Christian and not be baptized, but that's not the New Testament's ideal. The New Testament shows that baptism and membership in a local church are essential. They're important. Even if they don't save us, that doesn't mean that they're optional. You think about the New Testament. Uh, does the New Testament have a lot to say about things that, that, that don't save you but still aren't optional? Are you saved because you love your neighbor as yourself? Is that what saves you? If you were saved based on whether you loved your neighbor as yourself, would that be good news or bad news for you? Bad news. Because as much as we may try to do it, do we fall short of that commandment? We do. So loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, those are things we do imperfectly. And if our salvation was up to how well we did them, we all know that that would be bad news for us. But does that mean that loving God and loving our neighbor, uh, since they don't save us, they're just optional, we don't really have to do them? Is that how the New Testament presents it? No, of course not. In the same way, even though baptism and being a member of the local church, even though those things don't save us, They're things that we're commanded to do. They're things that God has given us in the Christian life that he says are important, that he wants us to do, and that as believers who are are faithfully trying to follow Christ's commandments, they're things that we need to do. So, this week, um, there are really three questions uh, that we want to ask about baptism. The first one is, how should baptism be done? That's the question of what mode 
of baptism? How should it be done? Number two, the next question, is who should be baptized? Um, there are two camps on this called credo-baptist and pedo-baptist. Should believers only be baptized or should it be believers and their households that are baptized, including their children? And then number three, the third question we'll get at, is what exactly does baptism do? What is its meaning? What is its function? We've already said one thing that it does is it brings us into membership uh, in the local church. It brings us into fellowship with the people of God. As you join a local church, baptism is the right that you go through to become a part of this body. But we're going to talk a lot more about that third question on Friday. Today's question uh, that we're going to start off with is mode of baptism. All right, how should baptism be administered? How should it be done? Um, there are three ideas. Well, first of all, let me say this. There are three biblical ideas. Okay. Um, what do you have to have for a baptism? Water. Water. So if you're baptized in chocolate milk, is that a baptism? No. No. All right. So, no. Right. Um, baptism is to be done in water. That's a silly point that we really shouldn't have to make. But for a baptism to be biblical and valid, it needs to be done in water. All right? Um, once we kind of establish that, there, there are three biblical modes of baptism, three ways that baptism can be administered that have some sort of a biblical basis. And what I'm going to argue is that all three of these modes are valid. All three of them are fine. All three of them have a biblical basis. I will say I prefer one to the other two. And I'll explain why. All right? Anybody know what they're going to be? Three modes of baptism. What are they going to be? Maddie? Uh, immersion, pouring, sprinkling. Immersion, pouring, and sprinkling. So let's start with immersion. All right, so there we've got them. Immersion, sprinkling, and pouring. Uh, what is immersion? What would immersion mean? You're dumped into the water and brought out. Yeah, you're dumped into the water, you're completely submerged, and then you're brought out. You guys have seen this done before, right? Uh, usually the pastor uh, kind of, you know, you kind of holds your nose or kind of touches your face or something, and, and then you go under the water all the way, and then you're brought up all the way. Um, baptism by immersion is the preferred method really in only two denominations, uh, and it's Baptist and Church of Christ. Now, if you go to a non-denominational church, uh, usually non-denominational churches lean more Baptist, not always. I know some that don't, but often they do. So non-denominational churches will often do um, baptism by immersion, and then some other denominations tend to prefer it, um, you know, some Pentecostal Church of God uh, type churches will prefer baptism by immersion, but not all of them do. Uh, a lot of them will, will do it by sprinkling or pouring. It kind of depends. I would say around here they probably, you go to the Grove, is that usually baptism? They do immersion. They do immersion. Yeah, I would say around here it's probably going to be, if you're kind of Pentecostal Church of God, it'll probably be immersion. If you got outside of the southeast United States, you would see a little bit more diversity on that. Um, I I even know, um, I don't know, First Church uh, over there by Dayton City, um, they usually do immersion. That's not, that's not necessarily the norm in Methodist denominations, but there, is, there are some Methodist churches that would 
uh, kind of prefer that. But Baptist and Church of Christ are kind of the two big immersion denominations, all right? Um, like, the, that's the only way they ever do it, all right? So um, there are some exceptions with, with Methodist, Pentecostal, Church of God. They, they maybe will do it differently depending on time and place, but these are the two big ones. And like we said, in immersion, the person is completely submerged under the water, and then they come up out of the water. They, they, get, they get dunked. All right, so what is immersion trying to do? Whenever you baptize by immersion, what is the biblical basis for it? And um, people that baptize by immersion, usually the imagery that they're trying to capture is something about uh, death to life, right? Um, oftentimes, whenever I've seen baptisms by immersion administered, uh, Romans 6, 3, and 4 gets read. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried. You get the imagery of under the water. You were buried. You're under it. Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you get this idea that the old you has died goes under the water. If you stay under the water too long, what happens to you? You drown, you die, right? So you get this idea that you've gone under the water, the old you is dead, and then you've come up out of the water and you have new life in the gospel. It's supposed to be a picture of what happens in your heart when you receive Christ. The old me is dead, a new me now lives, right? This is the imagery that baptism by immersion often is trying to deal with or or kind of get at and encapsulate, right? Um, immersion also plays with this really big theme of water throughout the scriptures. You guys who have had me for an older New Testament class have heard this before. Uh, what type of people usually go under the water in the Bible? Yeah, the bad guys. All right. The unrighteous in the days of Noah go under the water. The Egyptians in the Exodus go under the water. Uh, so the enemies of God, you know, the unrighteous, the sinners, go under the water, and the water is a symbol of God's what? Wrath. Wrath or judgment, right? What usually happens to God's people whenever they come to water? What does water do? Splits. Splits, right? So um, immersion is trying to play with this theme too. There are these waters of judgment, waters of wrath. And People who hold to immersion will, will sometimes say what we're trying to do is we're trying to draw a connection, very strong connection with, with Christ's baptism. All right. Jesus at his baptism in Matthew 3 goes to the waters and surprisingly, the waters don't split for him. What happens to him? He goes under them. It's a symbol that pretty soon Jesus is going to take God's judgment and wrath in our place. Right. Um, On the way to Jerusalem, that Mark 10 that I have up there, uh, Jesus is talking about the suffering he's about to endure in Jerusalem, the cross. And he says to his disciples, can you all be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized? Talking about the cross. Talking about how he's going to take the judgment of the world upon himself. So, So Jesus goes under the waters. He's an innocent, righteous person, but he goes under the waters of judgment. He dies for our sins, and then he's resurrected. And people who hold to immersion want to mimic Jesus' baptism as a reminder of his death and resurrection and how we now participate in it. We were buried with him. 
uh, in baptism into his death. We've been raised with him to new life, right? Jesus underwent the waters for us. Now we go under the waters just like, just like he did. We die to self. We live to Christ. Galatians 2.20 is sometimes read. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So immersion really wants to play with this death and resurrection imagery. The old me has died, has been crucified with Christ, and now there's a new me, and the Son of God lives in me. All right? Um, immersion hits very strongly on really, really good biblical symbolism. Immersion, I would say, is a valid mode of baptism. If you're baptized by immersion, that is, that's great. Um, one unfortunate thing about immersion is that whenever a person holds to immersion, uh, whenever a denomination holds to immersion, they usually do it, I think, way more strongly than they should. Um, like Baptist churches, for instance. I grew up Baptist. I love Baptist. I'm a big fan of the Baptist. Baptist churches, if you've been baptized by pouring or sprinkling, they see that as an invalid baptism and, and say that you need to do it again. And I don't like that. All right, It's one of the reasons that I'm not I'm not, at the current moment, Baptist. I, I, I think that that's wrong. And um, I think that there are uh, a few sticky problems we have to kind of consider with baptism by immersion. So let me, let me kind of show you what these are. Um, number one, the big thing that baptism by immersion is trying to get at is this burial imagery. You've died and you've been raised. You've been buried with Christ in baptism. You've been raised to new life. That's what we saw in in Romans 6, right? Uh, you, were, you were buried with him. And baptism by immersion is really trying to get at that burial imagery, right? There's an issue with that. And the issue is this. People weren't buried in the first century when the New Testament was being written and when baptism was being introduced. Not, at least not in the way that we think of burial. Whenever we think of burial, what does it mean to be buried? Yeah, six feet under the dirt. All right? People were buried in the New Testament times, but how were they buried? Huh? Caves. Caves, right? Were they put under the ground? Is that what burial means in the first century? You get buried under the ground. Well, under the, under the water, I'm going to get to that in just a second, right? Um, is that what you're getting at? Well, I was just thinking our sim- the symbolism isn't because it's like we're being buried under the ground, but because going under the water is what Jesus showed his symbolism of being crucified. Yeah, so let's talk about that for just a second. Um, Jesus was baptized by who? <laughs> John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And something that we need to recognize, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the case that this uh, really, people who hold to immersion and trying to find a basis for that in Jesus' baptism, that's a little precarious. All right? Two ways to argue that. Number one is Jesus was, was baptized by John the Baptist. 
And I'm going to make the case on the basis of Acts 19, John's baptism and what we call Christian baptism are actually two very different things. John's baptism was a baptism of what? Why was everyone going out to him in, in, in the Jordan? It was a baptism of what? Water. It was a baptism of water, but what were they doing as they were baptized? Mm-hmm. All right, the big word to associate with John's baptism is repentance. And John was baptizing in order to help people be ready for the message of Jesus that was about to come. All right? Now, Jesus' baptism, Christian baptism, is also, repentance is a part of it, but it's, it's not the main thing. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But look at Acts 19 really quickly. Um, this is a story of Paul's missionary journey. It says, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Kind of interesting. By the way, does Paul consider these people Christians? No. Well, what does it call them? It calls them, there he found some disciples. So are they being considered in the text Christians? Yes. Have they been taught very well? Is it possible to be a Christian and really not know very much? It is. We should be patient. So Paul's going to teach them, though. He's going to actually stay here for a few years and minister. He's going, to, he's going to pastor in a church of 12 people and teach these guys. So he says, did you receive the Spirit? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Spirit. This is great. We knew about the Father and Son, but there's a third, you know. Um, and so Paul says, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul says... John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, what did he do? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So did Paul see the baptism of John and Christian baptism as identical things? These people were baptized into John's baptism, but now they need to be baptized into Christian baptism. All right? So I make that point to say this, identifying Christian baptism with whatever exactly Jesus went through at the Jordan with John, that's something that we need to do very cautiously because they're two separate things. They're both called baptisms, but they're two different things. Something else that we need to consider is that it's really unclear whether Jesus was ever baptized by immersion or not. There's a lot of different ways you could go under the water. I went under the water this morning. You know what I did? Took a shower. Was I immersed? That's not really an immersion, is it? So what what the text actually says, if we pay really close attention to Jesus' baptism story, is um, is this. Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Now, that could mean one of two things. That could be the idea that he was immersed in the water, and then he came up, you know, the whole dunk and then, and then up thing. Could be that. What else could it mean to come up from the water? Walk up out of the river. Walk up out of the river. The same language is used in Mark's account. Luke doesn't actually say anything about it, by the way. 
him coming up out of the water. So that's why I don't have Luke up here. But Mark says, when he came up out of the water, immediately the heavens being torn open. So, so just the same thing. It could mean I came up out of the water because I was dumped in it, or it could mean I walked up out of the river. But does Matthew or Mark really tell us which way to read that? It doesn't. So to build a case that Jesus was necessarily baptized by complete immersion, I want more than this to try to say that. What's really interesting is that we have a parallel text in the book of Acts. Uh, Philip baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The eunuch commanded the chariot to stop and they both went, notice that, they both went down into the water. Is going down into the water something that only the baptized person does in this text? Something that the baptized and the baptizer both do. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water. So notice in Acts 8 that going down into the water and coming up out of the water is something both people do. All right. Um, so does that mean that, you know, Philip baptized this guy like this? All right, I've got my, my guy that I'm going to baptize and we both dunk ourselves and then we both come up. What is coming down into the water and coming up out of the water? What do those mean in the Acts 8 text? Walking down into the river, coming up out of it. Does, does Acts 8 say anything about the mode of baptism engaged in? It could be that they waded out into the river and then he took some water and he flicked it at him. That would have been a very Jewish thing to do. We'll talk about that in a second. Could have been that he scooped some water and he dumped it on him. That would have been a very Jewish thing to do. Could have been that he dunked him. But the point is, Acts 8 doesn't say anything about the mode of baptism that Philip used. All it says is that both of them went into the water and both of them came out of the water. And, and we also know from the eunuch statement, uh, I didn't put this in the text, but a verse earlier in, in Acts 8, they're going along and he says, there is a, anybody remember what he says? What type of water? There's not much, right? Yeah, it's just a little, a little pool. So um, all that to say, you know, the Acts 8 text, if we read Mark and Matthew in light of that, I'm not sure that we really have a strong teaching in the Gospels, how exactly uh, baptism was administered to Jesus to begin with. John's baptism and Christian baptism are different things, so we have to consider that. But we also just don't get a clear idea of how Jesus was actually baptized. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can you know, go under the water. Sprinkling, pouring, and immersion could all get at that imagery. We just aren't told which one is used. Yeah. I mean, that could be intentional. I think it is, because what we're going to see is that all three modes have biblical imagery attached to them. And so I think that we come to the baptism text and we're supposed to bring all of that imagery together, right? Um, some of the modes get at certain points of imagery better than others, but I think we're supposed to take all of them together, understand them together. So um, another thing that uh, people who hold to a really strong view of immersion will often say and again, I'm, I'm really not saying any of this because I'm opposed to immersion. Guess how I was baptized? Immersion. And I'm completely happy with it. All right? 
all I'm trying to say is, as somebody who was baptized by immersion, um, I don't think that we can really make a strong case that the Bible very clearly teaches this is the only way that can possibly ever be done. All right? And, and I've come to a place where, I'll go ahead and tell you this too, um, I tentatively prefer sprinkling, or not sprinkling, pouring. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that why too. But one of the really big claims that immersionists often make, something that I was taught growing up, um, and the, that uh, you know, I, I held to for a while as an immersionist before I kind of moved away from that, is um, a lot of people will make the case that the verb baptizo, guess how that's translated? Baptize. It's a Greek word. A lot of people who hold to a really strong view of immersion will claim that baptism necessarily means to immerse something. And um, there's a couple other texts that I could have thrown up here, but I just use these two because I think they make my point pretty well. Um, that idea that baptizo always means immersion really can't hold water. Ha ha. Ha. You get it? Yeah. It really can't hold water if we consider what the Bible actually how, how the Bible actually uses that word. So um, Mark 7, 4 is talking about a custom of the Pharisees. Uh, when the Pharisees come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. Now, your translations do something very frustrating. That is the word baptism. How's it translating it there? Wash. So is it very easy to tell that that's actually the same word as baptism? It's not easy to tell that, but it is. If you look in the Greek text, what it really says is when the Pharisees come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they baptizo, unless they undergo some form, unless they undergo a baptism, a washing. Uh, and there are many other traditions that the Pharisees observe, such as the washing or the baptism, baptism of cups and pots and copper vessels. And what's in red up there? Dining couches. Dining couches. So you guys know in the ancient world, um, the way that you eat is you don't sit in chairs around the table. You have these mats kind of up off the floor, you know, these dining couches, and you lay down to eat, which is actually kind of smart because if you're laying on your stomach to eat, can you drop things all over yourself? Yes. No, right? You're kind of propped up on your elbows eating. I don't imagine it's very comfortable, but I also have back issues, so maybe it was. Um, but... What the Pharisees would do before they would eat is they would ceremonially cleanse and purify everything. They would, they would sprinkle uh, you know, water on the, on the cups, on the pots, on the copper vessels. Um, I just can't imagine that this means that they took their dining couches and immersed them in water and then laid on them for half an hour. What would be, what would be the more natural way to interpret how they washed the dining couches wiped them off sprinkled them something like that the idea that they went to a river and they took this couch that they were about to lay on for half an hour and eat and they dunked it under the water and then they were like oh i hope that dries quickly or else it's going to be incredible it's probably not what's happening there yeah probably should not interpret this one as you know, to immerse. So this is an example of baptizo being used in a way that almost certainly doesn't mean immersion. Another one is Hebrews 9. Um, this is talking about the Old Testament and, and how the temple and tabernacle were used. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various... What is it really? Yeah. So this text is looking back to Old Testament law. And you guys know in Old Testament law, especially if you had Old Testament here, um, there are all of these ceremonial washings and cleansings that the Jewish people would go through. Right? And Hebrews 9 is referring to those as baptisms. Baptisms. Now, here's a question. In, from what you know about Jewish law, most of those ceremonial washings and cleansings were accomplished how? Do you know? There was this thing called a hyssop branch. And it was dipped into the water. And then you walk up to the person and it has, it's kind of this sponge type thing, right? Like hyssop kind of absorbs water. And you walk up to the person and then you don't hit them with it, but you go, and the water gets flicked at them. So is that like immersion, pouring, or sprinkling? Sprinkling. All right. There are other times where the Jewish ceremonial cleansing was accomplished by pouring. Um, I can only think of like one case where it's an immersion. So, baptizo here is being used as a catch-all phrase for all of those Jewish ceremonial cleansings, which are primarily not immersions. They're sprinklings and pourings. So, again... Um, this big claim, well, baptizo in and of itself means to immerse. So anytime someone was baptized in the New Testament, it was by immersion. That sort of an argument really can't hold up to close scrutiny whenever we think about how is the word baptizo actually used in the scripture. Because there are these two examples and a couple of others that I just didn't put on the slide that show that there are times when the Bible uses the word baptizo in a way that really can't be referring to an immersion. So I don't buy that argument um, personally. Um, so this is, this is our walkthrough of baptism by immersion. So if, uh, if you are somebody who, you know, you're thinking about it, and you're baptized by immersion, or you support baptism by immersion, or you're watching a baptism by immersion, in order for it to be spiritually beneficial to you, what, are, what is the symbolism that you should try to see in baptism by immersion? What is baptism by immersion trying to drive you out? What theology is it trying to remind you of? Jesus' death, death and resurrection, and how you, through faith in Christ, participate in that. You've been crucified with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, and now through faith you're raised to new life. And so if we see a baptism by immersion or if we participate in one, we should remember that symbolism. Is that good symbolism to remember? It is. It really, really is. Uh, this is a valid way to do baptism. There is a biblical warrant for it. Um, the immersionist claim that it is the end-all, be-all of baptism, that's something I want to push back against, though. Um, I, I don't think that that argument really holds 
uh, too much weight if we look at it with, with close scrutiny. Um, so, uh, you know, this isn't my, uh, this isn't me trying to attack this belief. This is me saying, uh, what I'm going to say with the other two beliefs. There's a biblical warrant for all three. You can't look at any of them and say the Bible definitively says this is the only way to do it. So the way that I would approach it is to say immersion, sprinkling, and pouring are all valid ways to administer baptism. Uh, but even though they're, they're all valid ways to administer it, um, and even though all of them have biblical warrants, uh, I would want to look for which one is kind of best out of them. And maybe you think immersion is best, and if so, that's great. Maybe you're going to think that sprinkling is best, and that's great. Maybe you think pouring is best, and that's great. Um, but I would, I would see all of them as valid. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Questions? It makes sense what we're saying about, like, the John's baptism and Christian baptism. You had asked a question. Does that make sense? Do you see? Okay. Um, to that... We don't really have time to get into sprinkling and pouring. We'll wait for tomorrow for that. Um, on this point right here, um, you know, Chloe does kind of raise a good point. The, I, I suppose immersionists are not really too concerned with the dirt imagery so much as like the you're, you're under the water type imagery. So maybe this argument uh, is something that we could kind of scratch out, um, but learn from it anyways, right? Um, the... Uh, something that's really easy to do in biblical studies and really just historical studies in general is, um, anybody know what this word is? An I can't even say it. Anachronistic. What does it mean? An anachronism is any sort of historical inconsistency. For example, if you were to write a work depicting dinosaurs being used by Nazi Germany in World War II, that would be an anachronism. Yeah. A, a lot of times an anachronism is taking something later in history and trying to put it on the past. Okay? Yeah. So, like, um, a way that... Um, well, I, I just to use this analogy, if, not necessarily this is something that happens, but if, you looked at a baptism by immersion, and you tried to see the, the dirt imagery, right? You're six feet under, and now you're, you're up again. That would be anachronistic. No one in the first century would have thought of baptism that way. That would be taking your idea of burial and putting it back on an ancient idea of burial. We don't want to do stuff like that in history, right? Um, that, is, that is like the big no-no of history. Um, another way that this happens sometimes is with like... Um, certain terminology. Um, so like, for, for example, we talked last semester about like some of this predestination debate and Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, if, when was John Calvin alive? Somebody impressed me. Yeah, 1500s. Ish, yeah, in the 1500s, right? Um, if I looked back at a figure in the 400s and wanted to say that that person had similar beliefs to Calvin, I would not do that by saying he was a Calvinist. Did Calvinists exist? No. 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 
They didn't exist until after Calvin. This guy lived before Calvin. So that would be an anachronistic use of that word. I would be taking something from later in history and putting it on something earlier in history, and I don't want to do that. So um, tomorrow we will get into sprinkling and pouring, and we will also try to begin to broach the uh, infant baptism debate as well. Um, And... um, I'll look and see if I have any pictures of, of my babies being baptized. I'll try to show them to you. I was in nursery when it was happening. I 